Let's begin our scripture reading from Hebrews chapter 12, back in verse 1. We'll go 1 through uh, 17. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Uh, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Uh, if you remember, as we've re- been reading through Hebrews, I mean, these Christians in, in this church, they had had to endure quite a, quite a lot, but uh, they haven't been made martyrs. There has been no blood that's been shed. They had to endure the confiscation of the property and many other troubles and distresses. But it could have been worse. And he says, verse 5, and, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons? From Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens Everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as his children, as his sons and daughters. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, but if you are not disciplined, then you are not legitimate. You are not true sons and daughters at all. Verse 9, moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. And then verse 11 is the... uh, the understatement of, of all time. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone And to be holy, for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Why did that happen? Why did God allow that pain? What was the reason for that sickness? Why did that difficult situation come into my life? And what did I do to deserve it? What did I do wrong? Why is it 
that God is punishing me? I mean, that's, those are the questions we ask since oftentimes our very first reaction is God must be punishing me. What the author of Hebrews is not saying in this passage, I, w- I want you to realize, he's not saying that we're supposed to take a chart and look at all of those days when we have been covetous or lustful or, or, or have lied, and we're supposed to connect the dots between whatever bad things that we have done, whatever bad things are happening in our lives. There's not a, there is not a one-to-one correlation between our sins and then the bad things that happen to us. Let's make that clear right at the very beginning. But on the other end of the spectrum, neither should we completely discount that think that there's no connection at all. There clearly is, according to this passage, sometimes. And think about it. If God is a good heavenly father, as we maintain that he is, then surely you'd think he would discipline us fairly frequently, as we have to do with our own kids. I mean, at least in my home, you don't get away with disciplining once every six months or six years. There's a fair bit of frequency. And if God is a heavenly father who is good, the discipline of the Lord is a mark of his love, is what the author says. It is a mark of his love for his children. You go back to high school and you remember all the cool parents in high school, who were mostly permissive and let their kids do whatever they wanted to do. The cool parents, if you recall, were were oftentimes just bad parents. Because it's not loving to let your children fall into many harmful and sinfully destructive ways. The bottom line is this. If we're going to live as children within our father's house, then discipline will be an ongoing part of our experience. What I like to do is unpack this in five short points. They're short points. I promise. Yeah, right. <laughs> First off, okay, number one, I would say that many times God brings hardship into your life, not as a result of your character flaws, but to reveal your character flaws. For example, you hear this very frequently from the average newlywed couple after their first year of marriage. They will say, They'll say words like this. I never knew how selfish I was until I, until I got married. How many of us have said that before? Do you see what God is doing there? God didn't look at you and say, because you are selfish, I'm going to punish you with a spouse. <laughs> Instead, God looked at us and said, because you are selfish, I will give you a spouse to reveal that to you. I will take you through difficult difficult marital situations in order to reveal that to you. And the same might be said about a difficult job, a difficult illness, a difficult injury. They may not be designed to bring us into confrontation with our boss or with our body, but they are designed to bring us into confrontation with ourselves and to help us see who who we really are. I've used this image before in premarital counseling. You may have heard this metaphor. Uh, You can think of an old bridge that is stretched out over a stream. And imagine that there are structural defects in the bridge that are hard for the naked eye to see. There there could be, okay, in this scenario, uh, hairline fractures that upon very close inspection you would see them, but to the naked eye it would seem as though there's nothing wrong. But now imagine that somebody drives a 10-ton Mack truck over the bridge, what is going to happen in that instance? The pressure from the weight of the truck will open those hairline fractures so that they can be seen, 
suddenly, because of the weight of the situation, all of the flaws are evident. Could that be what's going on? And frankly, nothing makes us flee to Jesus Christ more quickly than to actually see that the fractures, how deep they run into our, our, our souls, to see our structural flaws. Oftentimes, I think that is what God is doing in our hardship. Secondly, second point. No sooner do I say that hardship is not a result of our sin, oftentimes, than I say just the opposite, that sometimes it is. The unmistakable teaching of this passage is sometimes our suffering is in direct response to our sins. Look with me at at verse 6. Here at the end of verse 6, he is quoting Proverbs, as I read earlier, Proverbs 3, verse 12. And you notice he says, And God chastens everyone he accepts as sons. But the word there for chasten is actually the Greek word for whip. (laughs) Now, I don't want to suggest that, that God flogs us and he whips us, although some of our parents... Uh, I know that I was spanked with a belt. I know my dad was uh, was spanked by my granddaddy with a switch. Uh, some of us have definitely experienced discipline in that way. I don't think God intends, he's not flogging us. But his discipline, it, it is sharp. It's, uh, it, it's sharp pain that is intended to be corrective. I want to make another distinction right here, and and that is when God strikes us, it is not punishment. Technically, punishment is punitive, not corrective. When a judge, for instance, sends a a man to hang by the gallows, he's not trying to make him a better person. (laughs) When when someone is incarcerated for, for life in the penitentiary, it's not in order to rehabilitate them. Punishment has to do with justice. And thanks be to God, all of the justice has been satisfied by our elder brother who ended up taking it for us. So when God strikes us, it is not for, it's not punishment. It's not punitive. It's not retributive. It is corrective. Discipline is corrective. And here's a definition of discipline I want us to work with. Discipline. The job of a father is out of his love to bring a small amount of pain in the present in order for that child to avoid a tremendous amount of pain in their future. The job of a father is out of his love to bring controlled, measured pain that is wisely and, again, lovingly meted out to correct them. And we all know how this works. If the pain is too much... You, the child's going to be crushed underneath it, and, and the child's spirit is going to become embittered. And if the punishment is too little, then the child is, <laughs> is going to blow it off and not think anything of it. The, the, it has to be so wisely done. Um, but the whole purpose is you bring pain in, into the present in order to keep them from experiencing the pain of the future. You're trying to correct them and keep them from becoming a cheat or a liar, or a slave to their own selfishness in the future, which is, is some of the greatest pain that we can experience. So when, when we ask ourselves the question, is God punishing me? The answer is absolutely not. Again, the Son of God satisfied all the demands of justice on the cross. But when we ask the question, is God disciplining me? Then I would like you to go back to that diagnostic definition. 
use the definition. Is what I am experiencing right now measured, controlled pain that I can kind of sense that God is constructively using to bring about some correction inside of me? And I, I would tell you, I think God has a way of alerting his children to the fact that he is disciplining them. I couldn't tell you exactly how, but I think that it's one of the mystical parts of the Christian life. There are times when you and I simply know for a fact that God is disciplining me. There are other times when we're not sure. (laughs) Is God disciplining me? We ask him that question. Lord, what is this for? But I think God does have a way of alerting us that we should either pause and think again about what we're doing or we should turn around and go in the opposite direction or get down on our knees and repent. And you, I don't know how that works. It has something to do with Pentecost, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and the Spirit's communication to our souls. Thirdly, what we often say is, is this, that if God really loved me, I wouldn't be going through this. But verse 7 says, because God really loves me, I, I have gone through this, I am going through it, or I'm about to go through it. And notice in verse 8, the absence of discipline in our lives is not an expression of God's blessing. The absence of discipline is an indication that we are illegitimate. The, the Gold King James Version in verse 8 translates that the absence of discipline says that you're a bastard. You're an illegitimate son, son or daughter. When we're immature... We see discipline as as one of the most negative things in life. And you notice how children generally receive discipline. They don't receive discipline very well at all. No matter how much you try to explain the discipline to them, um, even if it's the perfect perfect execution of discipline, nevertheless, they're still going to say it's unfair. They're still going to say it's too hard, it's too long, you, you should not have taken my phone away from me. Um, yet when we're immature, we... we sh- but once we get older, isn't it funny how we wish our fathers disciplined us more than they did? Yeah, we wish that our fathers... Dad, I wish you would have disciplined my lust when I was young, my pride, my envy. There are different ways that we can respond to the Lord's discipline according to verse 5. One of the ways is we can make light of the Lord's discipline, which make light of. What does that mean? I suppose it means we can just blow, blow it off. Um, we can blow it off by not giving, not giving the event of hardship a second thought, never even asking him the question, Lord, is this you? Lord, are you trying to teach me something? No, never even think about the illness or the injury or the setback or the head-scratching circumstance and ask the question, God, are you trying to to talk to me here. That would be a way to, to make light of the Lord's discipline. Or it says then in verse 5, it says, uh, do not lose heart when he rebukes you. I think the way that we lose heart primarily is just we, we become full of self-pity. God rebukes us and uh, we, we complain and we grumble and we're full of self-pity. The challenge then is to believe that God is not treating us as slaves or as enemies, but as loved sons and daughters. This morning is a perfect opportunity for you to settle that in your mind. Will we believe God's word at this point so that when the hardship or the suffering comes in the future, we will 
we will not grumble, complain, accuse God, put God in the dock and, and shake our fists at him. But will we settle in our minds that we will receive this as the love and correction of our father? So that's the third point. As an aside, I was researching this week, and I came across a marriage book that was written by Alistair Begg. I know a number of you love Begg. He's a phenomenal preacher, famous pastor up in Cleveland. In this marriage book, he had a chapter on parenting which specifically addressed fathers. And he came up with these, what is it? He calls it uh, fact sheets, a fact sheet for every father, seven of these that I thought it would be good for us fathers to reflect on. And, and some of the seven are better than others. But very quickly, seven fact sheets for fathers. Number one, remember, I am always a dad, even on the mornings when I don't feel like it, even when I blow it, even when I think I'd rather be doing something else. The central fact of my existence is that I'm a husband and a father with responsibilities Joys and sorrows that come with that territory, but especially with responsibilities that come with that territory. I am always a dad. And number two, I can delegate my responsibilities at work, but I can never delegate the hopes that I have for my family. The primary values, attitudes, skills, and competencies that my children will grow up with and learn, or not learn for that matter, are the ones that I give them in my home through my duties as a dad. Number three, because of the inherent difficulty and importance of fathering, fathering fathering is the most dignified role I will ever play in this life. Over the years, the dignity of fathering has certainly eroded in popular culture. Television has portrayed fathers as buffoons, absentee workaholics, or permissive nice guys who don't have a significant ethic in their heads. So it's no wonder that many men have ceased to devote the kind of time and energy the task of real fathering demands. Number four, it is, it is difficult to be a good father. It's hard. There are no magic potions, no special formulas. One of the great myths in our society is that we can be parents without any real investment of time and energy. The great truth is there is no, no substitute for the investment of time, energy, and, of course, love. Five, discipline is an essential function of a father. You can buy every kid on the block, every kid on the block, an ice cream cone when the ice cream, trip, tr- ice, ice cream truck comes jingling down the road But you can't discipline anybody else's kids. We don't get to discipline any other kids. Your kid is your jurisdiction and your responsibility. And frankly, guys, you you can't pass it off to your wives. Like, dad's got to take the lead. Discipline is the least enjoyable part of parenting. But those of us who don't discipline consistently and don't do it well, uh, when we don't do that when they're young, we have a nightmare on our hands in just a few years later. What is it that they say? You're only as happy as your least, as your least happy child. And if, if boy, if you, don't, if you don't get it together, somewhat get it together now, I mean, your 20s and your, your 30s, once, once your kid gets to their 20s and 30s, it's going to be tough. Number six, our discipline must always be accompanied by love. That is, our verbal and corporeal discipline must be done patiently and kindly, 
not angrily or in annoyance or I'm at the end of my rope or I'm getting back at you. Discipline only works when it is immersed in a home environment that displays all the qualities of love spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And frankly, discipline doesn't work if, if it's not in the fishbowl of love. And seventhly, finally, let's admit, all of us earthly parents, all of us early fathers fall so short of real fathering. Sometimes we discipline because we're mad at him. Sometimes we want to pay him back. Sometimes because he's caused us embarrassment, he's caused us discomfort, and I'm saying, yeah, take that. Uh, when we do that, we're not disciplining for, for their good. We're disciplining for our good. And t- we, we're not loving them. We're loving ourselves. And for that, every father should sincerely apologize to their children and, and repent of that. We should be sorry for the wrong discipline. And we should say, I'm sorry. I am sorry for doing it the way that I did or the time that I did it or for the wrong reasons that I did it. But I'm not sorry for disciplining you because I want you, kids, this is what you need to understand when your parents this. I want you to become a better man than I am. That's what your, your dad is saying. He wants you to be better than himself. Then final point, I'll begin it with a caveat. And this is a caveat I should have said earlier in the sermon. In any case of suffering, in any hardship, God is doing thousands of different things through that providential event. Millions of different things, possibly. And you and I, we only can detect like one or two or three or a handful of the different things that he's doing. But if a godly woman in her middle years is diagnosed with stage four breast cancer, I am definitely not coming up to that woman and saying, hey, you know why you got this? We never never should, in my opinion, ever go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, this is the discipline of the Lord. Or if we do that, you better be absolutely sure that, that you are right. Uh, we should be very slow to try and draw one-to-one correlations in, in that regard. But the one thing we can be sure about, this is point number five, look what, what discipline produces in us. This is what God says it will do in your life, verse 10, if you let it. Into verse 10, he says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Then no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later on, however, it produced a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Four words, our good, our holiness, our righteousness, our peace. That is the design of our, of our loving Heavenly Father. And that is what comes to us painfully and mysteriously through the trials if we are trained by it. You have to remember, the only way that chastening works is if you let it. it again, if you complain and murmur under chastening, we've all seen our kids totally miss the whole message when we've disciplined them in the past. Just like the, the proverb says, what does a fool despise? A fool despises wisdom and discipline. And if we are fools when God chastens us, then it won't result in our good, our, our holiness, our, our righteousness, and our peace. But if we, the old Puritans would say, if we kiss the rod, if we kiss the rod, then the rod has an incredible power 
to transform us. So as we conclude, maybe, um, you know, maybe I've described where you're at today. I just want to reiterate to you again that God is not punishing you. Our dear older brother Jesus received the full measure of punishment that we were due on the cross. He loved us there, and so anything that, that God may be bringing into our lives is motivated by his love, and it calls for a response of respect and submission. So you may want to make this your prayer this morning, and this I'll conclude with. This prayer, Father, give me the proper discernment to know when you are chastening me and when you are not, and also the heart to receive it as my good. I do not want to resent your discipline. I do not want to sulk under your loving correction. Help me to realize that you correct me because you love me, and indeed because you delight in me. May your discipline have then its intended effect and result in holiness, goodness, righteousness, and peace. Amen.